The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm pumped tonight, folks. I'm really excited. Have we got a great guest for you? Um, the book is called, this is going to be very indicative of where we're going tonight. The book is called Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. And our guest tonight is Dr. Artie Clark. Just let me read a little bit about Dr. Clark. Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, a professor emeritus at Montana State University, has dedicated her entire life and career to working with indigenous populations. She has been adopted by enrolled tribal members and given traditional names by three Northern Plains spiritual leaders, including the Blackfeet, and her name there is Woman with Great Knowledge, the Northern Cheyenne, where her name is Walks All Woman, the Lakota Sioux, Woman Who Helps People. She holds degrees in English, history, psychology, and educational leadership. She is also a licensed therapist, has been a high school English teacher, a counselor, a school administrator, a university professor and administrator, and all that, folks, is what she does on the weekends. <laughs> the author of several children's books and the best-selling Sisters in the Blood and Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians, December 2012. She lives in Montana with her husband, Kip, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Artie Sixkiller-Clark to the show for the very, very first time. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Let's jump into your book right away, shall we? Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. And what these are, folks, are collected stories from Belize, Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala. Well, one of my favorite stories came out of um, Honduras. I was out in an area away from the the ancient city and uh, uh, was in an area where it, it was considered an area where um, uh, the the people lived, the residences of the of the ancient site. And I met an elder there who told me that he had worked for nearly 75 years at the ancient site of Copan, and that he first went to work there when he was five years old. Um, he had met um, Herbert Spenden, who had come to Copan. Uh, he was the assistant curator of anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And um, during that time that he was there, and, and uh, um, um, Louis worked for him, and he said that, that uh, he hired him for 10 cents, and he said mostly he was a runner. He said he would run and get things for, for him and carry water and brought lunches and different kinds of things. And he said that Spenden told him, he said, if you would learn English, I would give you a raise. And he said by the time he was eight years old, he could he could speak English quite well. And that uh, Spenden lived up to his, his uh, promise and gave him 25 cents. And he said that he worked with him and, and finally said that uh, Spenden left and then the Carnegie scientists came in. And they paid him 50 cents because he could speak English. And he said that during the time that 
that uh, the the archaeologists were there because they came there to excavate and restore the city. That um, he and his cousins would go out into the mountains to the caves and they would look for artifacts. And they would bring them back, and if the archaeologists liked them, they would buy them from them. And he said that they went into a cave one weekend, and they found what he called the Silver Man from the Stars. And he said that um, um, the man was um, uh, dressed in a, it was a skeleton, of course, inside the suit, but it was a silver suit. He said it looked like uh, the individual was about three meters in height. Uh, uh, no, about a meter in height, I'm sorry. And that he um, uh, uh, he described the the covering of the helmet was like a, a, a tin can, like a coffee can, he said, um, with a hose that went to the front part of his chest and that there were colored buttons on on the breastplate of his suit. They found a tablet nearby that had very strange writing on it, and they knew it wasn't Mayan because the city of Copan is filled with Maya writing. Um, He said that uh, they carried it back to the archaeologists, and the archaeologists were very excited about it. Um, And he heard one of them say that they should send it to the university right away, and he said uh, he never saw it again, but the next day he did see a box in the tent, and he said, I think they packed him up and shipped him to their university. And he said, uh, all of my life I've wondered about the silver man. He said, um, I'm sure scientists in the USA have studied and restudied him, but they keep it a secret. And he said um, what he had done was something, have uh, taking this silver man to these archaeologists who never shared it with uh, with his people. He said he believed that it was proof that uh, alien life did exist. And he said, in fact, some of the older, the elders, when he was growing up, used to talk about um, the the little man who came from the stars in a disc, in silver disc that spit fire, and they wore silver silver suits. And uh, the elders said that you could see them; they visited the earth and. They lived up on the mountaintops, often for weeks at a time. And he said they never bothered anybody, and the people left them alone. But he said the people saw them once in a while and knew they were there. And he said, I think our discovery was one of them who died, and that they buried him in the cave, and we disturbed the grave site. And he says, I, I've been haunted by this all of my life, because he said, I think it was the proof that was needed that alien life existed and that there are people who live you know on other other uh, planets and it also is a proof of our connection of the maya connection with the stars and the cosmos and he said it's something that um i have regretted all my life we're speaking with Dr. Artie Clark tonight, folks. I'm excited because the book is called Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers because she has several books out. The second book is called Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians as well we'll be getting into. Uh, Just click on those book covers. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. And tonight is a very good night to do that. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Kick your feet up, relax for the next several hours. We're going to be taking you on a wonderful, wonderful educational ride about our First Nations folks here in Canada, uh, Native Americans in the States. Can we talk a little bit about um, one of the uh, the blue people, the blue giants people? Now, pick any story you want that contains them because this is absolutely fascinating to me. And I'll tell you why after. An elder told me a story of when he was... Um when he was a boy, that he and his friends had gone into this cave and they found um, this head. Um, it was quite large. It, wasn't, it, w- it, was, it was shaped similar to a human's head, but the eye sockets were very different. He said the eye sockets went all the way around the side of the, of the, of the uh, 
uh, face um, to about the, the where an ear would be. And so the eyes were quite large. Uh, the eye socket was quite large. And they were so excited about finding this uh, this uh, um, huge head skull. And they carried it back to their village and took it to their grandfather, who became very alarmed. He told them that they must return it at once because um, they had disturbed a, a, a sacred place. And he said that these are, are um, uh, from the giants of the blue kind. And um, they are ex extinct now, and, and you are not to disturb them because once they walked on the earth and, and the... Um, and lived lived with us, and and would go and come back and forth. Um, so the the boys gathered up the skull and carried it back to the cave, but they were unable to find the site where they had dug up originally dug up the skull. So they take it back to the village, and the grandfather says, you know, you have to get rid of this skull because you cannot keep this skull. You have to uh, put it away. And so they took it out into the jungle, and they dug a hole, and they buried it. Well, a few months later, the grandfather heard about a man up near the Guatemalan border that uh, knew about the blue kind uh, giants that visited the, the region. And so he decided that for the boys to, to compensate for what they had done, to take this skull to this man and have him to tell them how to dispose of it so that it would not bring misfortune upon the people. And so they make this trip uh, to the border, and when they arrive, a crowd has preceded them. They have heard about this skull of the blue, blue giants. And a man comes into the village uh, who's very angry, and it was, it was said that in this village, this man's daughter had been stolen by one of the blue giants uh, several years previously. And he had sent her brothers out in search of the daughter to retrieve her from the, from the, from the, the giant. And two of the brothers died in the process of trying to locate their sister. And they never did find her. And she had never returned. And so when he, he found out that they were bringing this giant skull to to his village. He showed up as they were talking to this holy man who had knowledge about the blue giants. This man enters this circle and begins violently striking the skull with a machete. And there are several archaeologists there, and one of them tries to restrain him. But... Um, is unable to do so, and he said, you know, he thought, uh, you know, his his idea that he was going to make money out of this, and somehow he was going to be famous, was shattered by by this man with his machete, and he said that that um, um, at that moment the man placed a curse on the blue giants that they would never again their their people would uh, become extinct. And they said he was a very powerful uh, conjurer and that he placed a curse upon the blue people, blue giants, and they had never been seen in the village again. Wow, what a story. That's incredible. I know. It was, it's quite an amazing story. And he said this happened when he was a young man, when he was just a boy, in fact. But he had a, 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 quite a recollection of, of, uh, of it happening. You know, the reason I, I bring this up about the giants is, of course, you know, Genesis in the uh, in the Christian Bible and the Torah as well um, is full of stories of giants. We think of David well, and Goliath. Well, you'll find that throughout, you know, even in the United States. You know, you have a lot of Indian tribes who have stories of giants. Lucy Thompson was a Yurik woman. She tells the story of her people interacting with a race of giants who came from the north and she said that they had a ladder to the to the to the heavens she said that they oh they could climb this ladder and reach the sky 
But she said that these giants lived among them and that they married some Uruk women. And they said, she said that one day after years of living among them, that they came to them and said, you know, now they had to go home. They, were, they had to go north. And she said that they took the children with them who looked most like them. And they left behind the children that didn't look as much like them. And she said that is the reason why when the white man came to the Uruk that he found fair-skinned Indians living among us because those were the descendants of the giants who came from the north. And, you know, I just, you know, the, and, and when you talk about blue-skinned people, you know, the Cherokees have a story that when they arrived in the south, southeast that there were blue-skinned children or blue-skinned people who lived underground. And at night they would come out and they would tend gardens and collect their crops, but during the daylight, because uh, the sunlight hurt their eyes, they would go back underground, and they would stay under the ground. That's incredible. There are many stories of blue-skinned people and giants throughout the Americas. You know, you've piqued my curiosity now, because, you know, we have the Inuit people in Canada's north, and I'm just wondering, right. you, you had mentioned the nor they came from the north, I'm just wondering if there are any records or any oral traditions from those folks of giants. Well, you know, I interviewed Yupikan uh, Inuit people in, in Alaska. One group uh, was saying that, well, we came here on flying disc to this world. And we settled here in Alaska because it was like our home planet with the ice and the snow. And I thought that was a, a kind of an interesting, an elder told me that, 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 the world they came from was like the world found in the tundra of Alaska. And, of course, that would be the, the natural spot for them to land. Right, because that's yeah. where they, and they wanted to, you know, live in the area where that was most like, um, you know, their home planet. Any idea through all these stories that you've accumulated why they came to the planet? Was it a question of survival? Was it a question of just getting off their own planet and exploring you know, others? One of the interesting things I've heard uh, over the years that I've been collecting these stories is that that um, uh, these advanced civilizations that live somewhere out there in the universe um, have a practice of populating planets that if they find a desirable planet, they literally populate that planet and start life. They collect, they come to Earth as well as other uh, habitable planets. They collect uh, um, animals. They collect uh, um, DNA. They duplicate people. They uh, uh, collect plant and animal life, and they take that and plant it. Uh, on another planet, along with the clones of, of of humans or clones of other creatures, and they simply are seeding other planets. And that seems to be fairly common knowledge among a, uh, a number of people who have had interactions with star people. When you say interactions, are they? I know they're physical. Um, how do they communicate with them? Is it telepathy? Well. It, you know, the elders will tell me they talk in my head. <clears throat> so I'm assuming that we're talking about telepathy. Um, one one person told me that they told him if he would just be quiet uh, and think of the answers. They said that they did not like the sound of the human voice. And therefore, if he would just think his answers. And he told me how difficult it was at first because he wanted to say what he was thinking out loud. But they told him, just think your answers and we will understand. In terms of anything written down, in terms of hieroglyphics or anything like that, did you come across anything that was a common denominator, if you will? No. From the stories I've been told, uh, several different groups that are visiting the Earth, some are observing, some are scientists that are collecting data, and some have much more evil intentions, and and it would appear are collecting the DNA, are performing experiments, 
have total disregard, regard the human race as nothing more than a, an animal in a laboratory. Although the more harmless species don't approve of what they're doing, uh, none of them felt that they were in a position to do anything about it. I had interviewed Jane Goodall, and by the way, folks, Jane Goodall is a firm believer in Bigfoot or the possibilities of the existence of such a creature. And she gives very, very good um, very good reasons for it, I would say. She said that she's visited, like Dr. Clark has, many Aboriginal and various indigenous peoples right across the world. And wherever she goes, they all have the same type of tail. And that is of this giant ape-like creature. And she said what's very interesting is that she doesn't solicit the stories. As a matter of fact, they come up to her with the stories. And I'm just wondering, Dr. Clark, how did you approach the various indigenous peoples? Because was there a reluctance on their part? How did you gain their trust so that they would tell these wonderful, wonderful stories? Well, you know, I'm one of the people. And so, you know, when, when I set out, you know, over 30 years ago, when I, you know, first came to Montana State University and I met this young man who invited me uh, to join him in a, um, uh, a night view of the sky where he told me that if we were lucky, the ancestors would come. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, my, my people have stories of star visitors. Where, you know, are there other tribes out there besides his and mine that have star stories? So when I would travel for the university, whether it was at a conference or whether it was at some uh, national or international meeting, whether it was when I was doing research on the reservations or when I was um, whatever, I, you know, one of my jobs at the university was to go out and recruit uh, Native American students to come to MSU to study in the fields of, of teacher education and, and, and administration leadership. And so I would visit reservations all the time. And so, um, and not only in Montana, but all over the Northern Plains, even down into to the Southwest, I had students that I recruited. And um, what um, I started doing, you know, people got used to seeing me and felt comfortable around me. And, you know, in evenings I'd be going out to dinner with people or I'd be invited to people's houses. And I started asking them questions. Do you have any star stories? And have you ever seen a UFO? And people started confiding in me. And some people would say, oh, there's the UFO lady. I got to tell her a story. So a lot of that did happen because they heard of what I'm, of my interest, that they would approach me and say, I have a story, but I, I've never told it to anybody, and I don't want anybody to know who I am. But I want to tell you because I know that, that you will um, listen to me and won't tell anybody who I am. Anonymity was important to, to most of them for a number of reasons. Uh, they didn't want people on their reservation to know because they feared they'd be teased. Uh, I had some officers who told me that um, police officers who had had chased a UFO, and when they got back to their to the office, they had recorded it. And from then on, they were they were known as the little green men team. And you know, their uh, fellow officers never let them live it down. And they said if they had it to do over, they would have just ignored what happened because these guys, as long as they lived, that's what they would be known as, you know, and they said, we'll take it to our graves. So there's a lot of teasing that goes on, and, and a lot of people wanted to avoid that. Others were feared that uh, the tribe would get upset because other researchers might come there and wander around the reservation asking questions, and that's not welcome. And uh, so, you know, there were a number of reasons why people have remained silent. Um, and just do not share. And, and I think that, that with me, you know, they felt comfortable with me. I was part of their communities, part of their lives. They knew me and, and knew if I made a promise to them, I would never break it. And, um, and I think that's why the stories came to me. Um, I had not intended originally to write a book. That wasn't my purpose. I was interested just for my own personal, um, personal uh, information, uh, uh, part of a validation of what, um, as I say, what I 
heard as a, as a young child. And um, I, I had uh, retired at Montana State and, uh, and was looking forward to travel and, and uh, gardening and those kind of things. And uh, I got a call asking me to come out of retirement and to um, um, evaluate a federal program that had been awarded to a tribe. It was a $5 million, a five-year program. And uh, the feds uh, wanted an evaluation of, of that project, an annual evaluation, and I would be committing five years to the program. And um, I went back to Washington, D.C. I was trained on how, how, what all they wanted in this evaluation. And the next week I went down to the reservation and I visited with the key players and I was having lunch with a group of women one afternoon, and um, something came up about UFOs, and I began telling them some of the stories that I had collected. And this one woman looked at me, and she said, what are you going to do with those stories? And I, I said, well, I don't have any plans. And she said, well, what's going to happen to them after you pass? And I said, well, probably just get destroyed, because I don't know of anybody who would be interested in them except me. And she said, oh, I think there are a lot of people who would be interested in those stories. And she said, I think you have an obligation to write a book about them, because she said that's part of our oral, oral history. I completely and, agree. Um, pardon? I completely agree. I completely and, agree. And so on my way back, I'm thinking, do I want to commit to five years of doing a federal government evaluation, or do I want to write a book? And so the next day I called her, and I... And, uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write the book, and, and um, please get another person to evaluate your project. And, um, and so I began writing and going through all my notes and, and uh, my um, tapes, and, um, and the first book um, that came out was Encounters with Star People. And then this book, Scott People, uh, was part of a promise I made to myself when I was 15 or 16 years old. I had read a couple of books. Uh, one was called Incidents of Travel in Central America, the Chiapas and the Yucatan. And the other one was Incidents of Travel in the Yucatan. And they were written by two uh, 19th century explorers, uh, John L. Stevens and Frederick Catherwood, who had heard of rumors of these ancient cities in the jungle down in Central America and Mexico and decided that they were going to go down there and find out if it were true. And when my teacher gave me these books and I just read them, and I probably read them a half a dozen times when I was in high school, and I said, one of these days I'm going to follow in their footsteps. And um, that's what I did. And over the years, of course, I had heard, you know, the 2012 incident came along where everybody thought the world was going to come to the end and the Maya calendar was ending, therefore the world was ending, and and despite the fact that the Maya kept saying, no, this isn't what's going to happen, because our our uh, calendar is circular. When one world ends, another begins, people were convinced that, you know, uh, I mean, there were even people down in Mexico uh, waiting for a spaceship to come and carry them away, you know, uh, on December 21st. Um, but um, there have been so many things written, and particularly stories that the ancient astronauts had descended upon the Maya and uh, the Inca and had taught them all these things and had built these cities. You know, I thought, well, I've collected all these stories about Native Americans in the U.S., let's find out if I can find this information. Any stories similar when I go to that part of the world? And fortunately for me, I was able, before I left, to find some wonderful drivers and guides, people who believed in my mission and what I wanted to do, who provided me access to individuals, to villages, to, and validated me, and served as my companions, as my um, uh, interpreters. Uh, as my entrance into various villages, and I was able to get these stories. And what a great book it is, too, uh, folks. It's called Sky People, 
Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica, our guest tonight and the author, Dr. Artie Clark. www.nightfrightshow. Once there, click on both book covers. The other book is called Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians. www.nightfrightshow.com. When you click on those book covers, that'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. And tonight, as it dips down to minus 17 celsius it's a good night for that <laughs> stay inside stay warm you know dr clark well, it sounds like montana oh, oh where i think we're colder is that right yeah it's, it's uh the high today was 20 here and i think the low tonight is supposed to be around three degrees whoa so, so yeah. i'm not sure what that is in celsius but um, well, just to give you an example, 32 degrees is the uh, freezing point in Fahrenheit, and that's our zero. But it's not a one-to-one um, cancellation. Yeah. It goes a little bit weird. So we're probably around the same temperature. We're probably around five or six, I would say, yeah. Fahrenheit. But it's a good night to get the fire going. Yeah, we get all that cold air out of, out of Canada. <laughs> we get it from Alaska, so we blame Alaska. Yeah, for that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in Alaska with 70 below zero, if oh, you can believe it. good Lord. Yeah, I can. Absolutely. Actually, we have a wonderful guy who puts our uh, our website together who lives in Juneau, and he's a super trooper. His name is Kelly Logan. Kelly, thank you again, my friend, for putting it together, because the show would not exist without you. Thank you, my friend. You know, um, Dr. Clark, um, in northern Ontario, there's an island called Manitoulin Island, which is... Uh, a native uh, aboriginal people reserve and they get so many sightings of ufos of flying saucers and they have an abnormal amount of abduction cases reported as well what is it about native americans indigenous people everywhere uh, that attracts ufos and, and aliens can you put a few can you help us try and figure this out? Well, I think um, a lot of the people I've talked to over the years have told me that, you know, they regard um, uh, the star people as ancestors, as people who have gone before and, and people who, who uh, assisted them in the early days when they lived on Earth or people who even brought them here. Uh, and it, it varies from tribe to tribe, from group to group. I mean, in, in down in, in Mexico, I've heard the stories that they came from another planet, that they were brought to the, to, to that part of the world. Um, I've heard the same thing among American Indians. So, you know, and I haven't uh, had the privilege of working with uh, uh, Canadian uh, indigenous people. So... You know, I really, um, but it seems to me that one of the things that that is still very present among indigenous people is that um, the majority of them don't fear uh, um, encounters. Uh, they're very open to it because they consider it a part of normal uh, existence, of normal life. Another thing is that I think that a lot of people don't watch the stars anymore, that they aren't aware of what's going on around them. They're too concerned with technology, with television, with reality shows, with their smartphones and their computers, that they've lost sight of what it's like just to go out and sit at night and watch the stars. Bingo. I, I agree with you because I think everybody's looking down, texting on their smartphones. Right, and <laughs> Instead they're never of up. looking up. Yeah. yeah. So they're missing a whole different world out there, a universe. A universe virtually. Yeah. Pardon? A, an absolute universe, absolutely. And and I think that's the difference, you know. You go to a reservation and where, you know, I've seen a lot of changes in, in the 30-some years I've lived in Montana, um, you know, because of, well, first of all, the satellite televisions came in, you know, and when, when satellite came in, uh, tribes were, you know, the families were suddenly exposed to a whole different world. 
but still, you know, uh, uh, a good 50, 60% of the reservation, you can't use your cell phone, so it doesn't make any difference whether you have one or not, you know. Um, a lot of the younger generation, I know my nieces and nephews are so into this Facebook thing that, you know, but uh, you won't find me on it because I just, you know, I I would, I just think that people are far more important. You know, I, I've watched uh, uh, teenagers sit in a room with each other and text each other instead of talking to each other. And so they what on earth is going on, you know? And and me, you know, being a social scientist, I relish, you know, in, uh, the interaction with people and of uh, sitting down and listening to the stories of the old ones and listening to the elders speak. And and um, uh, you still find that um, on uh, among indigenous people, where elders still do hold a, um, a place of honor, where Many of them, uh, there's still a high regard. Uh, of course, there are incidents where that doesn't occur, but for most part, um, and elders have a lot of respect. And um, and and so I think that um, it's just a whole different worldview and a way of living, and and uh, that allows for more interaction than than outside that indigenous world. Dr. Clark, how far back do these stories go? Because I'm thinking they go back well, centuries. Thousands of years from the very thousands. beginning, you know. Uh, you know, I, I was in in uh, Mexico, and I was in a place called uh, Monte Alban, which is uh, a Zapotec, not Maya, but a Zapotec uh, ancient ruin. It's high up on top of a mountain. And I was standing there at... Uh, looking out over the valley below, and you could see a little f- smoke from fires that indicated that someone was burning a little field so they could they could plant corn. Um, and they go into the, the jungle and they clear away a p- place and they plant their corn, and then they uh, harvest their corn and then they move their little area to another spot so that the jungle has chance to to regroup, and um, these three young men approached me, and they were carrying a television camera, and they said that that they were doing a documentary on the slash-and-burn policies of the Zapotec who lived in that region, and they wanted to know what I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, I really don't have an opinion about this, and about that time, my driver came and intervened, and he said, you know, this is, this is, um, a doctor from the United States, you know, she's here doing research and collecting stories. Well, then, of course, they immediately wanted to know what I was doing. And when I explained to them what they were doing, they said, well, maybe we should follow you and document what you're doing because that's more interesting than what I'm doing. So I offered to buy them Cokes and sit and visit with them for a while. And one of them said, well, you know, one of the uh, there, there's a story in a in a nearby village about uh, a man who came from the stars, and he said that he came down on a beam of light. Now, this is an ancient story, um, probably 3,000 years old, and he came down on a beam of light, and he stood there, and he walked about the village, and he lived among the people. He married a, a village woman, and he built the great city, and he helped the people, he taught the people all these different things. And when um, he had a son, and when the son got old enough and married, then he walked back to the center of the, of the, of the town, and a beam came down from the sky, and he went up to the sky, and he never was seen again. Now, and they said, you know, you can, uh, so I decided I wanted to go to this village, and talk to the local people about this story um, and, you know, if there was any connection uh, with this village and with the star people. And when I arrived there, you know, I, I met this uh, um, this this uh, uh, man who told me about how frequently that the the starships would come and they would they would hover over the city 
and they would go to this place where where um the the father's son was was actually entombed and it's really interesting because when you look at the depiction of of him um he's wearing goggles and almost like uh you would think that somebody uh, a spaceman might wear the depiction of him and it, it you know um you can't help but see the connection uh when you hear the story that's being told you know it's funny you must be clairvoyant dr clark because i was just going to ask you if these are all oral traditions that are passed down or if there is some kind of documentation other than just oral traditions perhaps they're in oral traditions basically you know is there um, any in song that you've come across any what in songs no you know there there are music are our, our chants and they chant to you know the to to the uh, to the sky gods you know and and they chant in their native language and they say that they do that because the sky gods or the sky people actually speak their language and so it always their chants are done when they perform their ceremonies it's always done in their native language I see okay and in terms of um, coming across uh, paintings or any artwork did anything reflect upon the aliens or perhaps the vehicles that they were driving? No, nothing like that. Uh, Venus plays a huge role. There's a lot of depictions of Venus. Well, tell us about um, that then. Well, you know, throughout the Maya, Maya world, you will find uh, uh, different um, uh, symbols of uh, representing Venus in, you know, in the sky. There was one uh, a city in, in uh, Guatemala that I visited that um, all the rulers of that uh, city had the name of Sky. And, um, and they said that the, uh, the, original, um, the original builder of the city um, was um, uh, a very uh, uh, powerful um, uh, they, they said he was almost like a, uh, a magician. Um, he uh, had these unusual powers and, and could uh, do all sorts of things, you know, moving mountains and, and building these, these huge temples that all of the leaders that came after him were also named Sky. It was a Sky dynasty. I was talking to, him, to my, my guide about this. He was a... Uh, a teacher by training, and he was telling me that the Maya, the the sky. If if your name was Sky, that means that you had a direct connection um, with the and with the with the sky people. Uh, that you were the messenger on Earth from the you know that with the from the sky people. They said that um, when their great leader, the original leader of the city, when he passed, that Venus became dim. That Venus was his was his connection, and that the planet actually became dim and stayed that way for three days, and that's recorded in their their writing on their uh, uh, stellae in that city. It's you know these stories are just incredible, folks. Uh, I urge you get the books uh, Sky People: Untold Stories of Alien Encounters. In Mesoamerica, Dr. Artie Clark is our guest tonight. She's the author as well. The other book is Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can order them online. Well, and I assure you that the stories that I've collected are unlike anything you'll ever read, anything that's ever been published. Yeah, I'm staying quiet purposely tonight, folks, because I'm just riveted to the chair. These are amazing stories. And, it, you know, it, it's stories from our past as, as a human race. Um, it's not only indigenous stories. I mean, you're going to find a lot of these stories right around the world. I get uh, reports of UFOs all the time, abductions right around the world. It seems to be part of the human condition. And uh, I always say, well, and, and I think please. you know one of the things that that we forget is that 
the indigenous people of the world have actually held on to their ancient stories. And there was a time in history when all people had, had their stories and, and orally passed the, those, their history along to each generation. But as time progressed, and the Western man, so to speak, uh, began developing scientifically, and the, uh, of course the written word became popular, and then the printing press came, and, and the industrial age came, and all of a sudden the oral traditions lost value. The indigenous people, who were mostly isolated from this group, maintained their stories. But the others, who had probably had very similar stories to what indigenous people did, they just let their stories go. And it's unfortunate because it, they probably would have found a lot in common. American Indians haven't uh, given that up, nor have the people that I've met in Mesoamerica have they given it up. They pass on their stories. Is there a common message that has been passed down throughout the ages to all the peoples that have come in contact with the aliens? Well, you know, I, occasionally I have come across uh, stories that they're concerned about the planet. Mm. I've come across stories where they're concerned about the violent nature of, of humankind. Um, I have also been made fully aware by some people that, that uh, the aliens are far more interested in the planet than they are in the uh, perpetuation of the human race that if we no longer existed, there, was, there is this gem of a world out there in the universe that they could repopulate. Um, I have, uh, I encountered a Vietnam veteran last summer um, who told me that, that he had, um, uh, he was going uh, to Four Corners, uh, which is down in, in the New Mexico area, northern New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, that area. He was going to there for a veterans celebration. And he had gone out into the mountains the night before with his dog at, to camp. And his wife had, had passed, and, and they used to go to this spot and camp. And since she had passed away, he would go there on the weekends. And he, it made him feel more uh, closer to her, and it was just a, something that he did to get away from people. And he said that he had had he had cooked dinner and set up his tent and and was just about ready to call it a night when all of a sudden all of the stars in the sky disappeared. And he said he lay back on his back on his blanket and he looked up and he could make out on the fringes. He could see the outline of a huge spacecraft. And the, the spacecraft was blocking out the stars. But on the fringes he could see, on the fringes of the outline of this enormous spacecraft, he could see the stars. And he said out of this spacecraft came a, a number of smaller craft that flew off in different directions. And he said then the, the huge spacecraft disappeared. He said his dog, who was whimpering and very frightened by the event, had gone into the tent already. So basically he went into the tent and went to sleep. Next morning he gets up. He um, um, gets dressed, has breakfast, and packs up and is getting ready to go into to the Four Corners area when he comes around this bend over this butte, and there below him sets a smaller spacecraft and is located near an old abandoned mine. And he says that he, from his vantage point, they don't see him, but he can watch them. He watches as they go into this mine and they retrieve various samples of, of rocks, bring it back. And he said there were two different kinds of, of uh, aliens. They there was a smaller group and a larger, larger in stature, and they were working together. The small ones would go into the mine, come out with the samples. The larger ones would examine them, choose the ones they wanted, and discard the ones they didn't want. 
he said he watched this for about 30, 45 minutes. And he said then he decided, you know, to move on. He came around another bin, and there was another spacecraft, but this group was drilling and taking samples from the Earth. Well, he was very concerned about this. He was convinced that this group was invasive, that they were after minerals, and that because of their advanced civilization and their ability to travel throughout the universe, that we would be at their um, uh, at a, an extreme disadvantage, and they could do whatever they wanted to. And uh, so he and some of his veteran friends organized a, a watch group that, you know, watches the sky, uh, watches for UFOs, and follows up on on any strange occurrences because he's convinced that these, these, these aliens are not friendly. Our guest tonight has been Dr. Artie Clark. I want to thank her very much for joining us tonight. Her books, of course, are Sky People, Untold Stories of Alien Encounters in Mesoamerica. Dr. Artie Clark, of course, is the author and our guest, Encounters with Star People, Untold Stories of American Indians. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.